sent out a uh, ministry newsletter this week, and uh, some of you guys may have seen it already. And I, I try to always think of something. I don't want to just talk about what we're doing, but try to share something that might encourage other believers to get into I always like to kind of dive back into history and just take what, something that comes to mind or something I've been reading about and apply it spiritually. And in the course of that, as I was really making preparations to leave on this journey, I got to, I've been reading some, I kind of got back into my, uh, I'm a bit of a Civil War buff, so I've kind of gotten back into some reading where that's concerned. I kind of go in and out over the years, but I found an interesting uh, statement that was written back in 1865, and it I was reminded this morning when we were sharing prayer requests about the young folks from Liberty University going up to Washington, D.C. to protest or speak out for life. Um, I was actually kind of pleasantly surprised by that. I didn't know Liberty did that stuff anymore. Praise the Lord. But, and I thought about Washington, D.C. and We flew out of Washington, D.C. when uh, we went to Columbia. And there used to be a day and time when we as Americans took pride when we thought about Washington, D.C. And I used to enjoy going down to D.C. to the museums and the things like that and reading about history and all that. But right now, I wouldn't go to D.C. if my life depended on it. I wouldn't take my kids to the Smithsonian. I wouldn't take them to the Capitol. I wouldn't take them to the White House. Because if you do go to the museums, all you're going to get is propaganda. Are you getting anti-God propaganda or revisionist history that wants to remove God? So, you know, I, I hate going up there. In fact, if you get within a hundred miles of that city, you can feel, feel the spiritual oppression. And I, 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 I'm of authority to judge that because I've lived in some dark, dark places. And I'm going to tell you right now, a hundred miles out of D.C. and Northern Virginia is just as dark as anywhere I've been in the world. But in 1865, this is what was written about Washington, D.C. by a newspaper editor. He said, Washington, D.C. is no place to live. The rent's high, the food is bad, the dust is disgusting, and the morals are absolutely deplorable. Go west, young man. Go west instead and grow up in the country. Now, if the morals of Washington, D.C. and this country were deplorable in 1865, what do we call it today? I mean, I think, you know, we hear our politicians talk about draining the swamp. Well, I think swamp's far too flattering, flattering a term in that place. You can't drain a place like that. Where are you going to drain the filth to? You certainly don't want to go somewhere else. You can't scour it, though. There is a way to scour it. God scoured a place like that many, many years ago called Sodom. And it was with fire and brimstone from heaven. So, you know, I don't, you know, there was a day and time when we could take pride in the institutions of this country, but I think those things are gone. Uh, I think we should still pray for our country. I'm not sure that protesting and marching is the way to go. It seems like the protest and the march, the only things they ever change is things for the worse. They only change things for the worse. And if the, the people that scream for life in this country really wanted to end abortion in this, country, in this country, there's ways to do it. And it's not by protest and it's not by the ballot box. There's ways to do it. 
You know, we can go back and ask the one-third of the American population that wanted to put an end to British tyranny. We can go back and ask the one-third of our southern ancestors that wanted to put an end to Yankee tyranny. There's a way to stop it. But the reality is people don't want to stop these things. You know, are we going to be those that talk a big talk? Or are we going to be those that walk the walk? And I'm just thankful when I think about these things and they get me frustrated and I look at the news and I consider all the chaos and the circus. You know, we're, we're, we've, we've had to listen to the next, about things about the next election for the last four years. And every cycle, this is the most important election in this 24-7. Frankly, I'm sick of it. But there's coming a day, not when swamps will be drained, but when these pits of immorality will be scoured from the earth. There's coming a day when a king is coming, not a president, who's influenced by lobbyists and the political winds, not a guy that will take you what you want to hear to get your vote when it's time for the election. Even these local campaigns, I hear the advertisements on the radio. You got one guy claiming to be a conservative attacking the other guy, calling him a liberal, and then you got him claiming to be a conservative attacking this. It's just ridiculous. All they want is your vote. And we so naively give these out. But there's coming a day that we don't have to worry about that anymore. And my trust isn't in Washington, D.C. It's not in a politician. It's not in the president. It's in a king. Because I believe in a hill called Mount Calvary. That's one of my favorite. I appreciated that, that song today. And that's what we've been talking about. The king that's coming. We've been camped in that millennial kingdom for a while between Revelation 20 verses 6 and 7. We're going to strike the tents today, hopefully, and move on. We've looked back at some Old Testament passages that talk about details from the Messianic kingdom that's coming. And why do we talk about these things? Because they're a distant hope for believers, for the remnant in dark days like where we're living today, where it seems like evil just conquers. Where evil just presses the lines forward. These things are written for our hope. We don't have to freak out when the election results come in. We don't have to freak out when the news starts going nuts over coronavirus. We don't have to live like that because we have a distant hope. And that's what we've been studying. So I've just got a few small passages from the Old Testament I want to end our discussion of the Millennial Kingdom with. So I want you to, we're going to do some turning and let some folks read this morning. Then we're going to start moving to the end of the millennium and to try to cover a few more verses in chapter 20 of Revelation. So we talked about three main passages, Isaiah 11 and 12, Micah chapter 4, and Zechariah 14. Let's look at a few other details we learned about the millennium. Turn to Amos chapter 9, 11 through 15. The prophet Amos wrote to the northern kingdom of Israel. In a day and time where the rallying cry was, Make Israel great again. It was under King Jeroboam II, who was very Trump-like as a leader of the northern kingdom. And I don't necessarily say that in a bad way. It was a very similar sentiment in the northern kingdom of Israel that you have today in America on the right. And Amos the prophet was sent to rebuke the nation because their eyes were on the things of men. And the sins of that nation, despite calls for economic revival and despite a thriving economy, continued 
as they were before. I'm going to tell you right now that as long as babies are murdered in this country, there will never be a great America. I don't care what the economy says. I don't care what the Dow Jones... The Dow Jones means nothing to me. The stock market means nothing. When I hear that the stock market went down 1,800 points the other day, it means absolutely nothing to me. And it shouldn't mean much to, to, to uh, most average Americans. But it doesn't matter about these things. An economy can't keep going up and up and up and up. That's impossible. History shows that not to off, that, that can't continue indefinitely. It's always followed by a crash. And history repeats itself because human nature and human folly never changes. But it doesn't matter about any of these things. It doesn't matter about what judges are put on the Supreme Court. None of that matters as long as babies are continuing to be slaughtered in this country. None of that matters as long as we call evil good. And that was basically the message that the prophet went to the northern kingdom with. We do well to study this book. I get a devotional from the Institute of Creation Research every day in my email. They're just interesting devotionals. And recently they did a series on lessons from the book of Amos. I enjoy it because... We are living in those times. These books are relevant. And if you want to see what God has to say to our nation today, this is a good place to start. History is a series of lessons, not verdicts. And only fools judge history. Wise men learn from it. But this is the prophet Amos. Chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. We, have, we see a few details about the millennial kingdom. In that day, this is the millennial kingdom. God says, I will raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen and close up the breaches thereof. God's going to raise up the temple just like it was in the day of Solomon. We've talked about the millennial temple. And I will raise up his ruins and I will build it as in the days of old. That they may possess the remnant of Edom and of all the heathen which are called by my name, saith the Lord that doeth it. So in other words, in the millennium, God's going to raise up that temple and the children of Israel are finally going to possess, not be at enmity with, but possess all the Gentiles that have also been called by God's name. You see, since the founding of the church, which was primarily Jewish, Israel, by and large, rejected the Messiah and the gospel went to the Gentiles. And since that day, many Gentiles have come into the kingdom. And as a result of that, there's been enmity between Israel and the church. The people of Israel have had enmity to the fact that this would be for the Gentiles as well. In fact, we've seen this ourselves nowadays in our, our, our ministry or Jewish outreach. I remember some years ago, Ricky was uh, out preaching near a synagogue in Argentina uh, around one of the Jewish holidays. And he wasn't out there screaming and hollering. He was talking to folks, giving out tracts. And a rabbi and his wife came by afterwards and just really lashed out at him. And when he mentioned the Holy Spirit, just frothing from the mouth, it was either the rabbi or his wife said, the Holy Spirit is not for you, you dirty Gentile. It's for us, for us. There's enmity. But in the millennium, that enmity will be gone. This is a very important passage because James actually quotes it in Acts chapter 15. 
he talks about when they're deciding what to do with the Gentiles in the church. Should they keep the law? You know, how, you know, how, what should they do to continue to be a witness to the Jew? Settling these questions, James in Acts chapter 15 says that God had always purposed to take out for Himself a people from the Gentiles. That's the church. And then James goes on to say, after this, that is, after God takes out a people called the church, He's going to rebuild the tabernacle of David and restore Israel. So the, the rebuilding and the restoring, which is the millennium, comes after the time of the Gentiles and the age of the church. So it's a very important dispensational passage there in Acts 15 that tells us God's gathering out of a people, the church primarily from the Gentiles, precedes His restoration and the fulfilling of His promises to the people of Israel. So this passage here in Amos is quoted in the New Testament, but then it goes on to say, this is where we get some interesting details in verse 13, that uh, this passage is quoted in Acts 15, 15-17, for those that are interested. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him that soweth seed, and the mountains shall drop sweet wine, and the hills shall melt. So in other words, it will be a time of abundant fruitfulness. What do we do when we grow crops here? There's a time that you sow. Then there's a time that you reap. You know, the, the time of sowing never butts up to the time of reaping. There's a time when things have to grow. I used to, we used to be more faithful with our garden uh, back when we weren't traveling as much. And I don't know why. I continue to plow it every year and slave out there. And then we don't plant anything in it. I'm asking myself, why? Why not just let it grow and mow it? Uh, we sow in the, in the spring and then we reap in the summer. But what we can see here is that the plowman will overtake the reaper. They'll still be reaping fruit when it's time to plow. And the treader of grapes, him that soweth seed, they'll still, still be treading grapes when it's time to sow the seed again. So there's a time of fruitfulness. The soil will be being reaped when it's time to plow. Or when it's time to plant. Gardens. Fruitfulness. And I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel. And they shall build the waste cities. The waste cities are those that lie in ruins. You can go to Israel today and there's many of these. That were important trade centers or cities in biblical times. And now they're just ruins. In fact, it's very interesting. Jesus calls out... Um, Three cities in Galilee where he did a lot of preaching. Capernaum, Bethsaida, and Chorazin. Woe unto you, because if the things that, I, that, that I've preached to you had been preached in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented a long time ago in sackcloth and ashes. That was Jesus' message. He condemned these cities. If you go to Israel today, many of the cities and towns that were in existence in Jesus' day are still thriving urban centers today. But Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum are just ruins. There's nothing there. You can visit Chorazin and Capernaum. They're kind of like touristy sites, but it's just ruins. Bethsaida, they're trying to develop, but it's not 
The last time I was there, we just kind of went in there. It was all overgrown, and we walked amongst the weeds. But there's nothing there. You know, there's lots of places. Lachish lies in ruins. Okay? There are cities from uh, Judah that were important hill centers. Tel Azeka, nothing there. There's waste cities. Ruins. There's coming a day when those will be rebuilt. They're ruins now, but they will be rebuilt. And they will plant vineyards and drink wine and make gardens and eat the fruit of them. And I will plant them upon their land and they shall no more be pulled up out of their land which I have given them. So the millennium is a time when Israel will be finally and fully planted and never, never again to leave. Never again. Ruins will be rebuilt. Gardens will blossom. Blossom. And the, the harvest, the, the uh, reaper will overtake the sower of seed. So a time of fruitfulness, a time when there is no more enmity between Israel and the church. We're told by the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, and this is something ever in the mind of Eric and I and our families as we labor in Jewish ministry, that religious Judaism is an enemy of the gospel. Make no mistake. The Jewish rabbi, what's taught as Judaism and Judaistic laws and traditions which are not biblical. There's nothing in the Bible that talks about swinging a chicken around your head for good luck on the Feast of Atonement. There's nothing in the Bible that talks about you can't flip on a light switch on the Sabbath or that it's okay to get a dirty Gentile to do your work on the Sabbath as long as you don't do it. None of that garbage is in the Scripture. Those things are an enemy of the gospel. It's very clear. However, the Jewish people are beloved, not for the gospel's sake, but because of the promises of the Father. So regardless of whether or not they're enemies of the gospel, they're beloved for the election's sake because God has a plan and purpose. As He used them in the past to give the world the Scriptures, the Messiah, the prophets, the apostles, the first churches and missionaries, He will use them again as the world's center of government and as a testimony to the nation. So though the Jewish Judaism is an enemy of the gospel, the Jewish people are beloved for the Father's sake. And that's what ought to motivate us. Not how people treat us. It's really hard when you try to share the gospel with Jews and they, they look at you as just a dirty, filthy Gentile. I've had that happen before. But that's not why I do it. I do it because it pleases God. We can't be motivated with the gospel based on people's reactions to us. We always find it hard when people reject the gospel and we think, well, we must have done something wrong. No, the preaching of the cross is foolishness to both Jew and Gentile. And our desire to share it ought to be motivated by our love for God and His promises, not by how men react. But the time of the millennium will be a time of fruitfulness for Israel. Turn to another passage, Obadiah. Obadiah 17 through 21. There's only one chapter in Obadiah, just like there are in several other books. So it's technically incorrect to say Obadiah chapter 1. There, there's one book. I mean, there is, there's one letter. There's no chapter. So I would say Obadiah 17 through 21. Verses 17 through 21. Just a piece of trivia there for you. Somebody want to read that? Gene? Uh, 17 through 21? Yes. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, 
and the house of Esau for stubble. And they shall kindle them and devour them, and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord hath spoken it. And they of the south shall possess the mount, the mount of Esau, and they of the plain of the Philistines, and they shall possess the fields of Ephraim, and the fields of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. And the captivity of this host of the children of Israel shall possess that of the Canaanites even unto Zarephath, and the captivity of Jerusalem, which is in Sephard, shall possess the cities of the south. And saviors shall come upon the mount of Zion to judge the mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. The prophet Obadiah was written to the descendants of Esau, who were very prideful and haughty and sought to destroy Israel. They sought and cheered when Babylon came and wiped out the temple and drew people captive, the descendants of Edom cheered. And then they harassed the people left in the land. And more than anything, the book of the short book of Obadiah is a lesson about God's attitude toward Gentile nations that mock and persecute the people of Israel. That's really the lesson there. And Edom was one of those. And we learn that in the Millennial Kingdom, Edom will be no more uh, as a result of its haughtiness. Uh, uh, it will it will be erased. There won't be any, any remaining. And instead, Israel will possess it. You know, I like going to the land because these place names that we find hard to pronounce and you know mean nothing to us kind of take on a different meaning when we see where they're located and why they're listed. But what we're told here is that Israel in the millennium will possess the Gaza Strip. She will possess the West Bank. And she will possess the whole entire country of Jordan and Syria. That will be Israel. Now that is confirmed by the allotment of the land that we looked at in the book of Ezekiel concerning the land. But all these things the world argues about now and tries to say doesn't belong to the Jew will belong to the Jew. She will possess it and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. We're also told that there will be heroes, men of renown, mighty men like in the days of Judges in the Lord's kingdom who will rise up out of Israel and be used by him to, uh, to do exploits. So interesting details. Flip over a few pages to the prophet Zephaniah. So we're just in the minor prophets right now, looking at a few things. Somebody said, I don't remember who it was, it might have been Ronnie some years ago. Man, if we ever finish with Revelation, maybe you should preach to the minor prophets. There's no way I'll finish that before Jesus comes back. That's a good idea. There's some good things in there. Zephaniah chapter 2. Verses 6 and 7. Daniel, would you read that? <clears throat> and the seacoast shall be dwellings and cottages for shepherds and folds for flocks. And the coast shall be for the remnant of the house of Judah. They shall feed thereupon. And the houses of Ashkelon shall they lie down in the evening. For the Lord their God shall visit them and turn away their captivity. Okay, if you go to Israel today... 
The seacoast includes the Gaza Strip, which is a toilet bowl, just a filthy, filthy place. It's urbanized, it's slums, it's just your typical third world. And you can see the smog rising up over it in the distance. Now, that's not something that's possessed by Israel, possessed by the Palestinians. And then you've got all of the urban sprawl of Tel Aviv. Just urban sprawl. Terrible traffic. If the Lord tarries one day, Jerusalem and Tel Aviv will just be a huge megaplex. Uh, one big city. But the seacoast is just urban sprawl. And then as you get north up to um, Netanya, and around there, and a little bit north, there's a, a small part that's more rural and beautiful. But then you get into all the urban sprawl of Haifa up into the north. And so the area that's being talked about here is around Gaza and Tel Aviv, which today is like the L.A. Basin, just urban sprawl. But in the millennium, we learn that this will be a place of recreation and vacation, a place for flocks, a place of beauty, natural beauty, a, natural, a national park. So what is urbanized and overcrowded and jammed with traffic today will be a national park in the millennium, a place of refuge and beauty. See, only God can do that. Only God can take a piece of land like Kathmandu, which used to be one of the most beautiful valleys in all the world. I've seen pictures from the 70s. And man has moved into that in droves and has filled that valley and has absolutely destroyed it. It's an, it's an ecological nightmare waiting to happen. And there's, the only one that can fix something like that is God. And He will. When Christ comes back, even the land will be rejuvenated. And what once was a crowded city, deplorably immoral, like Washington, D.C. in 1865, today I can describe it for you, it's so much worse. God can cleanse it and make it a place of beauty. Praise God for that. Chapter 3, verse 9, through... Somebody read verse, chapter 3, verse 9, uh, Matthew, chapter 9. Then will I turn to the people a pure language that they may all call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with the name of His There'll be a universal language. You know, when man when man tries to institute a universal language, it oftentimes allows for more communication but more conflict. That's what English has done for the world in the modern day. Used of God for the Scriptures brought great benefits to the world, but that only brings conflict. In the Millennial Kingdom, there will be an international language, a pure language, a language of trade understood by everyone, but instead of fostering conflict, it will foster <laughs> peace. Some people look at this passage uh, and try to say that Hebrew is the pure language of heaven, that Hebrew will be the language of the Millennium. The text does not say that. Okay? Modern Hebrew today is derived from ancient Hebrew, and it's an incredible testimony of God starting to fill His promises with Israel because a language that was dead, people are actually born and learn that as their first language today. It's a modern miracle of history. But nowhere in the Scriptures are we told that Hebrew is a language of heaven. That's a presupposition that's not listed anywhere. But there will be a pure language so that all can understand and call upon the Lord. 
in that day. When you go down to verses 9 through 13, you also learn some things. Um, I don't want to take time to read it. You can read it on your own if you'd like. But what we learn is that in that kingdom, there will be no more Jewish arrogance or haughtiness. I mean, let's face it. I support Israel. I appreciate the Jewish people. But in that culture, there is a haughtiness and an arrogance that can really drive you crazy. And it's drove people crazy throughout history. And it's resulted in horrible things done to the Jewish people. And that's not an excuse by any means. Those that do horrible things against the descendants of Abraham will pay for it. God's very clear about that. But there does seem to be a haughtiness and an arrogance there that won't be there anymore. A self-righteousness. I didn't say that. Paul said it. He was a Jew of Jews. He said the problem with Israel is they went about to establish their own righteousness. Not the righteousness which is by faith of Jesus Christ. That's the problem. So Paul said it. I didn't. But that haughtiness, that arrogance won't be there. In the millennium. It'll be cured. There will be poor people in the millennium. The Bible says in chapter 3, verse 12, I will also leave in the midst of thee and afflicted and poor people, and they will trust in the name of the Lord. Jesus told the disciples that kind of mocked the woman that brought in the alabaster box and broke it over him and anointed. They were like, oh, we could have given that to the poor. Jesus said, the poor will always be with you. But what this woman has done is more important than that. You know, we tend to think by giving to the poor, we're like so righteous in the eyes of God when we neglect the greater, weightier matters of the law. That's not what we shouldn't do unto others. We should have them do unto you. But if we love our fellow man more than we love God, we're sinners. The poor will always be with us. They'll be here in the millennium. And the poor will be present, and even they will trust in the name of the Lord God. Rich and poor will dwell together. No class warfare. Next book, Haggai. This is an interesting little book in the uh, Old Testament. I set the context for Zechariah and the book of Haggai. Remember, those prophets came at the same time when Israel was screwing around after the captives returned and were told to rebuild the temple. Haggai, in chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, speaks of an individual who was faithful in a day and time when very few were. And as a result, he will be rewarded. And I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms, and I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen. This is when Christ comes back. And I will overthrow the chariots, and those that ride in them, and the horses and the riders shall come down. Everyone by the sword of his brother. In that day, when Christ comes back and sets up his kingdom and overthrows the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts, I will take thee, or I will take you specifically, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, saith the Lord, and will make thee a signet, for I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. Zerubbabel was the governor that led the people back from Babylon. was in the genealogy of Christ. Both genealogies, the one from Mary and the one from Joseph. And he was faithful in a day when very few were. God says, I'll remember that. And you will have a special place in my kingdom. So Zerubbabel will serve as some sort of spokesman or mouthpiece of some sort for the Messiah. Just like the signet 
was the mouthpiece of the king's authority when it was stamped on an official document. So the lesson there is God remembers our faithfulness in a time when there's very little of it. God doesn't forget the sins of the wicked, and He doesn't forget the righteous faith of even the most despised of His people. And they'll have a place. Let's don't labor for worldly influence here in this, on this side of the kingdom. Let's labor for authority and power in His kingdom. That comes from being... If you want to be great, Jesus said, you got to be a servant. Zerubbabel was a servant. He was promised that one day he would have great authority. That's a comfort from us. And then at the last little book of the Old Testament, Malachi... Some things about the millennium. Now remember, Malachi came sometime later after Haggai and Zechariah. They, were, they came about 520 B.C. Finally, the people got up off their rear ends and finished the temple. And then you had all that mess that happened with, at the end of Ezra and Nehemiah's long lives. And then Malachi came around about 100 years later. And what was found was not a faithful people, that were keeping the covenants that had been made under Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel. What was found were the seeds, the very seeds of rabbinic Judaism that has led so many of God's people in Israel astray. What was found was a people that had robbed God, a people that had profaned His covenant, a priesthood that had been corrupted, much like the Catholic priesthood and the rabbi that Israel are corrupted today. Offerings that were polluted. That's what the prophet came and preached against. You people ought to know better. You were brought back from, from your captivity. God blessed you. The temple was rebuilt. What have you done with it? You're not serving God. You've corrupted everything. And guess what? A day of reckoning is coming. A day of reckoning is coming. Not just for you, but for this whole world. That's the message of the prophet Malachi. And when he came and preached these hard truths, I'm not sure what Jewish tradition says about what happened to him. But after his prophets, prophecy came from the Lord, God went silent for 400 years and had nothing more to say through divine revelation until the angel spoke to Zacharias in Luke chapter 1. But there were some who in Malachi's day heard that hard preaching, and humbled himself. We somehow made the foolish mistake of thinking in modern day America that if we just love on people and tickle their ears and make everybody just feel warm and fuzzy inside, then they'll all just get right with the Lord and serve the Lord. That's not the way it works. Are we so arrogant that we think we can do things different than what's ever been done in history and somehow have a different result? That is the epitome of arrogance. God used hellfire and brimstone preaching to bring people to repentance. That's what He did. And the proof that preaching or prophecy originates from God is what Jeremiah says in his book. It leads people to repentance. That's the proof. Not it causes churches to grow. Not it causes uh, buildings to grow up. None of that means anything. It's whether or not men humble themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened in Malachi's day with the select few. And we see how God notes this and even these will have 
a place. Look at Malachi 3. So this is after the, the, the prophet has spoken some very hard truth. You know, you people have robbed God. You're divorcing your wives. I hate divorce, God said. That's what he says here in Malachi. He hates divorce. That has not changed. God hates it. And yet, more than, more than 50%, more than half of the marriages in the church have resulted in divorce. We have pastors that counsel wives to leave their husbands. And counsel husbands to leave their wives. But God says He hates divorce. It's the selfishness of Christian people when it comes to their marriage. You know, it's like their children and what divorce will do to their children means nothing. It's like we're so weak and self-entitled, we won't even think about our kids. But God hates it. And the prophet came preaching this stuff. And it made some people angry. I don't know if they killed him like the people killed Zechariah. But look at this. Hard preaching. God's reproof. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another. And the Lord hearkened and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Then shall you return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth not. So the few that listen and humble themselves, God drew up a book of remembrance. He would remember them those that feared Him in the last days of the Old Testament, strangers without a country in their own country, will one day be in a place of judgment and authority. In one day, those who feared God in dark days and humbled themselves when many others would not, would sit in a place to judge between evil and good. A place of authority. So God takes up, God has a book of remembrance for the faithful that are relatively unknown to the world and appoints them and has a place for them in judgment and authority in the millennial kingdom. We see the exact same thing articulated in Isaiah 66 and in Jesus' parable in Luke 19 about the pounds. What happens to the one that was faithful? He turned one pound into ten pounds. God says, be faithful over ten cities. The one that buried it in the earth. Oh, you're an austere man. You care about your money. I just didn't want to lose it. Jesus is like, well, why don't you just put it in the bank? And at least let it get interest. And take what, take his pound and give it to the one that was faithful. So there's a place of authority coming in Messiah's government for those who are faithful. Even these in the days of the end of the Old Testament. We don't even know their names that were faithful. A book of remembrance was written down by the Lord. And these will have a place in His kingdom. Now note what this faithful remnant did. I don't want to get off track here. But note what they did. They came and heard hard preaching in dark days. God's prophet was mocked. Very few listened. But what did they do? They fellowshiped with each other regularly. It says they feared the Lord and spake often to one another. So they fellowshiped regularly with each other. They feared the Lord's judgment. 
They thought upon his name. You know, we can talk a big talk and go through the motions at church. But how often do we think about the Lord? Do we get distracted during the day? How often are we thinking upon his name? To think upon his name is what the what Solomon talks about in Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not with thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he will direct thy path. If we want the Lord to direct our paths, we ought to be thinking about it. We ought to be acknowledging Him. That's what this remnant did. They feared, they, they fellowshiped regularly with each other. They feared the Lord and His judgment. They thought upon His name. And what was the fruit of that? They were able to discern the difference between right and wrong, between the truth and a lie. I think about a passage in Proverbs chapter 12. Verse 15, it says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he that hearkeneth in the counsel is wise. If we want to be able to discern right and wrong, truth and error, then we need to fellowship one with another, be accountable. We need to fear the Lord, not just the parts that talk about His love, but the parts that talk about His wrath. We need to think about Him and acknowledge Him. And then we'll have the fruit to discern what's right and wrong. Not right and wrong according to the world, but according to God. And ultimately, that's what matters because that we're going to see at the end of Revelation 20 is the basis for His judgment. The wicked are judged based upon their works. You don't go to hell, per se, because you didn't believe the gospel. You go to hell because you're a sinner and your works have been found guilty before God. What the gospel is, is the only way to cover that. The only way to have righteousness. But truth and error, evil and good according to God, is the basis for His judgment. So it makes sense that that's what we should care about. Not what the world has to say. So these are just kind of a, a few passages that give us a little foretaste about details in the millennial kingdom. They speak to us today. They give us prescriptions for how we should live. I hope you found that interesting. But let's jump real quick back to Revelation 20. What have we seen in chapter 20 verse 4? Well, in the first three verses we see the arrest and the incarceration of Satan. Satan is locked up for a thousand years. He's thrown into a bottomless pit. What we call the abyss. It's the great gulf that was between Lazarus and the rich man. Satan's cast in there. A seal is put on it. And he's nowhere in a picture for a thousand years. Then verses 4 through 6 sum up the millennial kingdom. A thousand years in which Christ and His saints will reign with Him. There will be a government. There will be a princes and kings and officers and, 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 and various uh, magistrates and so forth and so on. And the saints will have authority in their glorified bodies. Then in verses 7 through 10, what we see is one final rebellion. You know, the rebellion doesn't come to an end at the coming of Christ. At the setting up of His kingdom. There's one final rebellion. Even without the devil, man's 
those that survive to live into the millennial kingdom, when men will again live to the ages like they lived before the flood, when children are born, uh, those will still have that sin nature and there'll be a seed of rebellion. And then in verses 11 through 15, the chapter finishes out with the final judgment. So the last half, we see a final rebellion and a final judgment. And that's what we're going to get into now. Revelation 20, we've been camped out between verses 6 and 7. Now we're striking the tents and moving on. We've had the millennium. I've shared with you what it is, why it is, why it's literal, details of what to expect uh, in those days. Now we're moving on. And when the thousand years are expired, when they're finished, we have thousand years mentioned six times in this chapter. Here it's with the definite article, the thousand years, a specific period of time. This is a literal period of time. There's no reason to think otherwise. When they are expired, that means they have a purpose. We talked about their purpose. Sabbath rest for the earth. 6,000 years of toil and sin. 1,000 years of Sabbath. Six days of work and toil, a rest day in the week. Israel did not keep Sabbath. Six years of toil in the land, a seventh year of rest and Sabbath. They didn't obey. And so they were out of the land for 70 years so the land could have its rest. The earth will have its Sabbath rest. The creation that groans even now even the animal kingdom is smarter about morality than the typical American today. It knows when things aren't right. It groans. It will have Sabbath rest. And when this is done, when this is fulfilled, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. That word loose in the Greek, the New Testament was originally penned in Greek because Greek was the trade language of the day. And by Greek... The gospel could go to both Jew and Gentile. Okay? So in the Greek, this verb here, to loose, if you ever study biblical Greek, it's the verb luo. That is the very first verb you will learn. It's a model verb. And if you study the verb to loose, and luos, luo, lue, luomen, luose, lucen. I can still remember. You study it because it's a model of how verbs behave in the Greek language. It is consistent. It's not irregular. So that's why this verb is familiar to me. But what happens here, Satan doesn't break out of prison. He's set free. He's set free. He's set free like he was in the book of Job. Satan didn't just go do to Job what he wanted to. He was allowed to. God put limits. The first test, you're not allowed to touch him. Second test, you can touch his body, but you're not allowed to kill him. Satan was set loose. It's the same thing in Isaiah 10. We learn that's what happens with Antichrist. He doesn't arise in his own power and do what he wants, though it'll appear that way in the world. He's set free. In Isaiah chapter 10, the Antichrist or the Assyrian is called the rod of my anger. God says He's the rod of my anger. He's my discipline to show what is right and wrong. And then, of course, we read about the first seal. The Lamb opens the seal, the title deed of the earth. And what's the first thing that happens? The white horse rider is set free. He's set loose. He comes bringing peace or claiming peace. A bow with no arrows. 
Here Satan is set loose just like the Antichrist for God's purpose. There is a sovereign God that governs all of this. I believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe and hope in the hand of divine providence. There's a reason for everything. And what does that spur in me? It should spur hopeful and intelligent action. The doctrine of divine providence is not the same as the hyper-Calvinistic doctrine of fate. This is the way it's going to be. There's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing you can do about it. I believe it was William Carey that went to some sort of a gathering with a famous uh, preacher. I, I can't remember the details. And, talk, and he stood up and said something about how we need to take the gospel to the heathen. And this preacher, this hyper-Calvinistic preacher said, sit down, young man. If God wants to, to save the heathen, He can do it Himself. He doesn't need you. Well, I'm thankful William Carey didn't listen to that old preacher. I'm thankful he took the gospel to South Asia. And I was thankful some years ago after my wife and I visited the temple of Kali where they hacked heads off of goats and worshipped the goddess of blood. You know, the Hinduism that the West is so infatuated with. I was thankful we could walk a couple blocks down the street and hear him singing. And, and it turns out that was a church William Carey had planted. It was still there today. So I'm thankful the great missionary didn't listen to that old preacher because the doctrine of God's divine providence isn't the doctrine of faith. Faith encourages frustration and inaction. That's not the God we serve. I believe in God's sovereignty and everything we do can have a purpose. There's hope in that. Even the menial things of life. And Satan's being set loose here has a purpose. Antichrist being set loose has a purpose. God is in control. And He uses agents, the agent of the second cause. He uses His people to accomplish His purposes. He'll accomplish them with and without you, but you can be a part of it. And you'd rather be a part of it. That's what William Carey decided. He wanted to be a part of it. And he was. Verse 8. Satan is loose out of his prison, the abyss, and he shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth. Satan goes out to deceive. You know, the prince of the power of the air, the god of this world, has two primary strategies. To deceive those that are living at ease, like we are here in America, and to intimidate those that are suffering or are in peril. That's why you see Satan's main mode of attack for us, living at ease, we've grown fat with all our blessings, spiritually and physically. He attacks us by deceiving us. Deceiving us. Satan's greatest victory in America is he's deceived us into believing he doesn't exist. Keith Green wrote a song, it's the devil speaking, and he's rejoicing at the fact that nobody believes in him anymore. Great. I'll take y'all to hell with me. But in places where people are in peril and are suffering, like in the third world, he, he intimidates. People are afraid of him. The gods of Hinduism, uh, Shiva and Kali, they don't love these gods. They're scared to death of them. The patron deity of Nepal, Shiva, is the devil himself. And people worship him not because they love him. They, they're scared to death of him. Those have always been Satan's primary strategy. And in, in times of ease, 
when people began to take their peace and their blessings and their entitlements for granted, he goes out to deceive. And that's the situation at the end of the millennium. A thousand years of peace. Messiah has, is reigning. The joy and the celebration has worn off. Everything is good. And it's no longer something we are thankful for. It's something that people take for granted. And the population of the earth at that time is ripe to be deceived. That's his job. That's what he does. Amos chapter 6 verse 1 says something that we would do well with regard to this mode of attack. Woe to them that are at ease in Zion. Remember, Amos was written to the northern kingdom when it was prospering economic, economically. Jeroboam II was a great builder. He just started the northern economy. Everything was relatively at peace. What is the thought to say? Woe to you who are at ease in Zion. Woe to you people who are at ease here in America. In magnet country, woe to you. You're more easily deceived. You know, that was Sod Sodom's problem. What does blessing produce? Blessing produces ease. But then when we take our eyes off the source of those blessings, that ease leads to idleness. And then what does idleness lead to? It leads to entitlement. Entitlement breeds malcontent. Malcontent breeds delusion. And out of delusion is rebellion. That's the way of things. It's the way of things throughout history. And it will be the way of things in that final rebellion when the Messiah Himself in flesh and bones is reigning. Because human nature never changes. And God's going to teach us one final great object lesson. Look at Ezekiel chapter 16 because I use, I use this passage when I'm teaching our young people that serve with our ministry and Team Yeshua. I like to teach them how to study the Scriptures. You know, how to make sure we're minding the context and we, we properly understand the Scriptures. And I use Ezekiel chapter 16 verses 49 and 50 as a test. As, as an example of what, why we need to mind the context. Why we can't cherry pick Scripture. Why we have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Why we have to give heed to the historical context. Now look at these verses because the LGBTQ or whatever they call themselves community today, which has infiltrated our churches, point to these two verses and say, Aha! The sin of Sodom was never homosexuality. That's not why God destroyed Sodom. Of course, in saying that, they ignore the entire context of these chapters. They ignore what the verses say. They ignore the story there in Genesis. They completely ignore what is plainly spoken in 2 Peter and Jude. And they ignore what's said throughout Romans chapter 1. Well, Jesus never talked about homosexuality. Yes, He did. Because when He rebuked fornication, which is sexual sin, He certainly rebuked it. Jesus didn't talk about the internet or internet porn either. Because there was no internet then. But does that mean it's okay? No. Because it's fornication. And since when does...
Jesus not saying something in the red letters mean that He didn't say it. Of course Jesus talked about it because He's the author of the Scripture. Ezekiel 16, God's making a point to the captives of Israel. Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. This was her sin. Pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughter. See, Sodom's sin wasn't homosexuality. That's not why God destroyed the city. She was prideful. She wasn't hospitable. She was idle. That was her sin. God doesn't have a problem. It's okay for a man to marry a man. It's okay to elect a president who takes his girly boy husband and they go defile the Lincoln bedroom forever. That can't be cleaned, my friend, once that happens. It's okay. God's okay with it. And then we have this pit squeak running for president who wants to lecture us on what the Bible says. Give me a break. Once that Lincoln bedroom is defiled like that, it's probably already defiled. It can't be cleaned. It needs fire and brimstone. May fire and brimstone fire fall from heaven and do to the White House what the British tried to do in 1812. That's my prayer. I don't care if you like that or not. Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the poor, the hand, the poor and eat. Oh, see, Sodom's problem was she didn't give them the poor. And that's when they stopped. Well, what's verse 50 say? And they were haughty. And they committed abomination before me. Therefore I took them away. See, the homosexual doesn't like to read verse 50. And then he doesn't like to read verse chapter 49 and 50 where whoredom, sexual sin, adultery, abomination, wickedness, those words are repeated over and over and over and over again. And then he wants to ignore the actual story. You know, Lot's told, you better bring those angels out here because we want to rape them. Anybody with an elementary knowledge of Hebrew knows exactly that's what was taking place. And then Jude says that they went after strange flesh. God destroyed them. And for that, that is a testimony to all peoples of all nations of all ages about what God thinks about that. But here we see this cycle in Sodom. That cycle in Sodom had produced itself in Israel. You had a people that were at ease. That's what attracted Lot to the cities of the plain in the first place. It was a place of ease. I'm going to choose those fields. And Abraham stayed in the highlands. It was a place that was blessed and at ease. And a people at ease were what? Became prideful. They had all the bread. They had all, all they ever needed. Just like we, we've got our electricity, our water, our internet, um, everything we need at our fingertips. And so ease produced pride. And pride gave way to idleness. And out of idleness came abomination. That's why all this abomination starts in our nation, because we're an idle people who have taken God's blessings for granted. That's the lesson of Sodom. And Israel didn't learn it. You know, even the most wicked sins don't start out out of thin air. The sin of Sodom and the homosexuality of America was so long ago when we ceased being thankful. When we ceased caring about right and wrong. The seeds of everything we see today were sown in the 60s. And even before. 
So we're reaping the sins of our fathers and we're guilty of it just like they are. And that was the lesson of Sodom. That's the lesson for Israel. And that's the lesson for today. And the same cycle is going to repeat itself. Idleness produces entitlement, malcontent, delusion, and rebellion. So when Satan's let loose, what do we see here? He shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. When Satan's set loose, it doesn't take him long. He doesn't have to sow a rebellious spirit. He finds it already alive and well. Not just north, not just out of the north, like Ezekiel 38 and 39, Gog and Magog, north, south, east, and west, and he's able to gather them to battle, and their number is as the sand of the sea. How sad that at the end of, a, of their glorious millennial kingdom, when God has shown grace and mercy to this earth and to that people, that's what results. Rebellion that is as the sand of the sea. Men never learn. So he's able to gather them to the Messiah's capital as the sand on the seashore. What is the seed of this? Remember in Zechariah 14, we talked about how all the world will celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles and will come up to worship, but there will be some nations that won't. And those who refuse will be judged. With, they won't, there won't be rain. There will be plague. That's the seed of this rebellion. Man, at some point, places Egypt and others decide, we don't want to come up anymore. We're going to do our own thing. We're going to do it our own way. And those seeds give rise to what Satan is very easily able to gather. With the same lie that he not only has peddled to himself, but that he has peddled all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It's the same lie he himself believed in Isaiah 14. I will ascend to the mountain of God. I will be like the Most High. Satan's told himself that lie so many times he actually believes it. And what did he do? He told that lie to the woman. Genesis 3. You know, God, no. You're not really going to die. What he really means, you know, I know the, the, the Bible says that you will die, but a better translation would read, you'll be like him. You'll be like God. You'll know the difference between good and evil. You can be like God if you eat this fruit. It's the same lie. You people can actually rebel and overthrow the Messiah. And you can actually win that fight and reign in His place. That's the lie He peddles at the end of the millennium. Even though the Bible says the heathen rage and imagine a vain thing, the kings of the earth are gathered together against the Lord and against His Messiah... Just like in Armageddon. And what does God do? Does He fear? Does He worry? He that sitteth in the heaven shall laugh. The world was already taught this lesson at Armageddon in Revelation 19. But the people of the Millennial Kingdom don't teach history to their children. And their children. And by the end it's all forgotten. And you have another population as numerous as the sands of the sea. These are not saints in their glorified bodies. 
These are not the remnant of Israel or the Old Testament saints in their glorified bodies. These are the survivors of the tribulation that are allowed to continue in the millennium and who have children and their generations. Just like the prophets say, there is a seed of rebellion and they are convinced to believe the same lie that Eve believed, the same lie that Satan told himself in the beginning. And Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. God's only response to those who think they can actually overthrow His rule and overthrow His society and His Messiah is to laugh. God does laugh. He laughs at those that think they can overthrow the Messiah. And He laughs at those who despise His people because He sees the day come for those who think they're so self-righteous. God laughs at the social justice warriors in this country. Big keyboard warriors on Twitter who think they're righteous, more righteous than anybody that ever lived. God laughs at them because He sees their day is coming. But the lie is believed. And we have Gog and Magog. Now we, dis we discussed this a long time ago. Ezekiel 38 and 39 has a prophecy regarding Gog and Magog. That word Gog is, is reference to a prince. And Magog is his land. Okay? And we see that an event happens toward the end of this age where Gog and Magog come from the far north and are gathered to invade Israel. This is not the same Gog and Magog, and I can prove that to you. But Gog is a reference to a prince, Magog to his land or his kingdom. And so what you have here is the gathering, this use of the term Gog and Magog here shows that this is a gathering, not just of rebels with pitchforks. This isn't like the Whiskey Rebellion or the Farmers' Rebellion in the early days of America where people, the peasants, came together and tried to institute a rebellion. This is powerful people in places of authority. This is nations and their armies coming together to try to invade and overthrow the Messiah. Gog and Magog. Again, the lesson of Gog and Magog had already been in history prior to the millennium. These are people that don't learn from their history and think they can do the same thing again and yet accomplish different results. That's the definition of insanity. This isn't a band of rebels. This is nations and governments. A great host. Now, this can't be the Gog and Magog of Ezekiel 38 and 39. Now, I've preached on that before. I believe sometime, possibly after the rapture, prior to the rise of Antichrist, there will be an invasion involving Russia, Iran, and Turkey and their Islamic allies. We see that tension even today with Israel. That will try to invade the land of Israel and they will be overthrown by a mighty miracle of God. And as a result of that, the people of Israel who have been already gathered into their land in a state of unbelief, just like Jeremiah says, will move from being in a state of unbelief to a state of God-fearing. Now, unfortunately, they have to go through the tribulation before they transition from God-fearing to Messianic. But there, there's a future time coming where there's an invasion. And Ezekiel says it will be in the latter years. An invasion of Israel from the far north. The north parts there in Hebrew means remote. The far north. This Gog and Magog is coming from north, south, east, and west. So it's different. Latter years versus the end of the millennium. 
The purpose of the invasion of Israel in the latter years, we're told in Ezekiel 38 and 39, is that number one, so that the heathen may know there is, God, there is a God. And number two, that the house of Israel may know that He is their God. So this can't be talking about, Revelation 20 can't be talking about that because we're at the end of the millennium where the heathen know that God is God and Messiah is Messiah, where Israel long before came to know that Jesus is the Messiah and has served Him faithfully throughout this millennial kingdom. The God and Magog and Ezekiel is to wake up the nation of Israel. It's probably going to result in a complete downfall of Islam. And therefore will give rise to the Antichrist. It's Antichrist who will take advantage of that to kiss up to the Jew and sign a treaty with the Jew to rebuild his temple. So it's not the same God and Magog. The heathen have already been made to know God. So has the house of Israel. The events of Ezekiel 38 39, the tribulation, the coming of Christ, and the millennial kingdom. But then the children of these forget. It's like man has done throughout history. You know what the genealogies teach us in the Old Testament? We often think, oh, these things don't have a purpose, they're boring. The genealogies teach us some very important principles. Number one, it's possible for a godly father to produce a godly son. That's possible. It's possible for a wicked father to produce a wicked son. But guess what's also possible? A godly father to produce a wicked son and a wicked father to produce a godly son. Hey, that's comforting. It happens. It's the way of things. We should expect it to happen. It doesn't always go the way we plan. We should pray for our children, but we can't make them follow the Lord. They must do it themselves. They must make that decision themselves. We can want them, but beware of trying to talk them into it. Gog and Magog gathered as the sands of the sea. This was tried once in Armageddon, Revelation 16. Here, the devil's able to deceive, and it's tried again. As I said, what's the definition of insanity? You try the same thing over and over and over again with the same results, and you somehow think the results will differ. Sand of the sea, an innumerable multitude of rebels. Right for the picking when Satan is loose. You can't say the devil made me do it. The devil didn't make these people do it because they're already ripe for rebellion. The rebellion's already there. All he does is gather them. You know, the devil made me do it is never an excuse for any sin. I'm reminded of something that's written in the book of James. God does not tempt people with evil. Period. End of discussion. Some would say so, but God doesn't tempt people with evil. But what? How are they tempted? It says in James 1, 14 and 15, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. <coughs> Not when the devil leads him astray. The devil is a tempter, but man sins when he is led away with his own lust and enticed. And when that lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth lust. Men choose to sin. They may be influenced. The devil may deceive. He may intimidate. But you choose to sin. The homosexual chooses 
to live that way. The lie of the world is that people are born that way. Well, duh, we're born in sin. That's why I have to teach my children how to lie. They do it by nature. But there's always a way to escape. You know, no, there is no scientific evidence that someone who claims to be gay is born with some uh, genetic difference in someone else. Though that is not true. That has never been tested with a legitimate, reliable sign. There's no evidence of that. Just like there's no evidence of man-made climate change. Oh, there's plenty of climate change according to the Word of God preceding the coming of Christ. There's reasons why we're having crazy monsoon winters like this and earthquakes in divers places and the seas and the mountains roaring. There's a reason. It's because creation is sick and tired of man and his rebellion and it's groaning for deliverance. Not man-made. We don't control the climate or the creation. God does. And unless He comes and puts His foot down on the Mount of Olives, this creation will vomit us out. But the devil made me do it. It's not an excuse. The sand of the sea here reminded me of what Gideon saw in the book of Judges. God told Gideon he had too many troops. I'm going to whittle your army down because I'm going to teach you to trust me. So Gideon ended up with 300 men to go to battle against the Midianites. And so God told Gideon to take his servant. I want you to go down and look upon the camp of the Midianites. And I'm going to teach you something. So Gideon went by night with his servant in Judges chapter 7. And when they went down to spy out the host of Midian, after God had reduced his army to 300, what did he see? He said he's, they were spread out like the sands of the sea. Exact same imagery we see here. God overthrew the Midianites. All, all that Gideon, his 300, did was blow some trumpets and break some pots. And then what did that great host numbered as the sand of the sea do? They turned upon themselves. They destroyed themselves. God taught His people a great lesson. You know what a sign of the wicked is? I think the Proverbs 22-13 talks about a slothful man or a lazy man. A slothful man says, there's a lion in the streets. There's a lion in the streets. I can't go out. I can't leave my house. It's not safe. That's the same attitude that people in America are having now about the coronavirus. There's a virus in the streets. I can't go out. You know, that cowardice, that foolishness, that freak-out attitude, that has no place in the life of a believer. And that same type of attitude, a lion in the streets, a lion in the streets, is what God used to overthrow an army. Those people were so scared at nothing, at the breaking of pots. You know, if you mess with God's Word, He can mess with your mind. God messed with the minds of the people of Midian overthrew them and taught His people a great object lesson. And it's the same object lesson that God's going to teach His people at the end of the millennium. What do we see in verse 9? Just be patient with me. What do we see in verse 9? 
Gog and Magog gathered together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea, and they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. And there was a great battle that raged for days. <laughs> and the fire and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Wiped it out. End of, end of the story. Same object lesson that the people of Israel learned in Judges 7. These rebels come and surround the camp of the saints. The word that's used here in the original language means an encampment. It's like an army camp. Or an army already drawn up in battle. Like Israel's encampment when it went against the Amalekites in the desert. So the camp of the saints here, I believe, is not the new Jerusalem hovering above the earth. It's the army of the saints that have gone out to meet these rebels. They're drawn up in battle. The saints, the church, the women of Israel are drawn up in battle just like they were when Messiah came back in Revelation 19. They've gone out and these rebels have surrounded the army camp of the saints. They've surrounded the beloved city, Jerusalem. So what we see here is the saints go out to meet these rebels in battle. And they're surrounded. I'm reminded of an image from the end of the, the last Lord of the Rings movie. And you see the gates of Mordor open and all those orcs and armies come out. And there's that remnant that went to... Uh, after they won a victory, they, they gathered all that were left and they went to march on the kingdom of Mordor and to meet the enemy. And when the gates open, all of that stuff comes flooding out. And what you see is it makes its way around that army of men and elves and just completely surrounds it. And that mighty army looks just like it's in peril. Like there's no, there's no hope of winning this battle. That's the image I see here. The saints go out to meet, are drawn up in battle, and they're surrounded. I think there's a lesson here. Far too many of us cower behind our comforts and securities when it comes to wickedness in our nation today. I don't care what the numbers are. I don't care what the odds are. We ought to be those that are willing to go out and meet them. Yes. You know, I think about when there was something going on in Washington. I don't remember what it was, but all these protesters went to the home of Mitch McConnell, the uh, Republican leader of the Senate in Kentucky. And they stood out in front of his house and blared horns and, and megaphones and sirens and get shout and scream. And did things that lawfully they shouldn't have been allowed to do. Now, if I'd have gone and done that in the neighborhood with the gospel, the police would have arrested me. But of course, the corrupt, wicked police malicious people do what they did. And the entire time, what did the senator do? He cowered in his home. Never came out, never showed his face. What he should have done is go out to meet him and make the cameras show their wickedness. Too many cowards in the church today. I'm one that thinks we need to go out and meet the wicked. We need to stand in their face and refuse to back down. Just my opinion. But that's what the saints do here. There comes a time when we need to go out and meet them whether we have a numerical chance of success or not. Because that's when God does His mightiest work. You know, this is very similar to something that happens at another point in the history of Israel uh, with King Jehoshaphat. And I'd like to talk about that sometime because it's a great story. And it gives us hope in this day and time. But I'm going to defer for now 
Second Chronicles 20 kind of has a microcosm of, of what I be- believe happens here at the end of the millennium. The saints go out to meet God. And what does God say? I don't need you to fight. I don't need you to fight. And the fire from God comes down out of heaven and devours them. That word devour is the same word used in Revelation 10 where John is told to take the book out of the hand of the mighty angel. That mighty angel is the Messiah as he appears on behalf of the people of Israel. That book is the title deed of the earth. John is told to eat it and he devours it. He eats it and it's sweet in his mouth but bitter in his belly. And then he's told to go out and preach this message of God's coming judgment to nations and people. It was sweet, the kingdom of Messiah, but it was bitter because it brought wrath and judgment. But just as John devoured that little book in his mouth, God's going to devour these rebels. Devours them. Just like those locusts have devoured all those crops in Africa and have now made their way over to South Asia. You know what uh, is an effective tool to use to fight those kind of locust swarms? And my kids aren't allowed to answer this question. Does anybody know how you fight that? Ducks. I was reading where the Chinese government was sending like 700,000 ducks to Pakistan to try to fight these locusts. And it showed this, these just hordes of ducks going down. I don't care how cute and furry an animal is. You can take the cutest, the sweetest, the furriest little animal. And when one of those becomes a thousand, it's scary. There's nothing cute about it. You can take the cutest animal imaginable and put them in a group of a, a thousand or a hundred thousand of the same animal. That's not cute and fuzzy. And thousands of ducks marching down the street is scary looking. But anyway, God's going to devour fire of God. Not the fire of God from Job. That was from Satan. Satan was allowed to control the weather. This is straight from God. Fire and brimstone, like what destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, is going to rain down from heaven and put them out of two there won't even be a battle. One last object lesson. One final lesson of history God teaches His people before He destroys this present creation and creates a new heaven and a new earth. What is that object lesson? Well, whether man is in a state of innocence, as in the Garden of Eden, whether he's governed by his conscience, as in the days of Noah, or human government that was set up to restrain evil after the flood. Or whether God, man is governed by promises made by God, like to Abraham and the fathers. Or by the law that came down at Mount Sinai, written on our conscience. Or by grace shown in Jesus Christ. Or whether God deals with man through a kingdom, a literal kingdom where Messiah in the flesh reigns with a rod of iron in consequences for rebellion against Him are obvious and have been demonstrated. Regardless of what situation man is in, he, left to himself, will fail. Whether it's in Eden, the Tower of Babel, Egypt, Assyria, that thought they could put an end to Israel, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and all remember those seven heads of the beast, those seven worldwide kingdoms, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, all fought. They could do it their way. They failed. Those kingdoms lie in ruins. Or maybe it's the Third Reich 
or the USA of today, or even the kingdom of Antichrist. The nations gathered together in Armageddon, or the nations gathered together against the saints at the end of the millennium. Man, when left to himself, will rebel against God, and he will fail. That is the great object lesson that God ends the present creation teaching His people. Without me, as Jesus said, you can do nothing. That's the great object lesson. The psalmist sums it up in Psalm 39.5, and this is so politically incorrect, and it flies in the face of everything our nation teaches, both Republican and Democrat. Psalm 39.5, man at his best state is altogether vanity. The Kohelet or the preacher in Ecclesiastes says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, saith the preacher. Man will always fail in his efforts to set up his own peace on earth, to assert God's authority, to be like God, to overthrow his purpose, or to change his promises. Man will fail. That's the great object lesson. Man doesn't learn it. And Armageddon, he has to be taught it again. We may as well learn that now. And our life will be a whole lot easier. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy path. Rest patiently in the Lord. Rest in him and wait patiently for him. Better is a handful with peace than to have your arms full and all the stress that comes with it. Verse 10. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. Not were. Remember at Armageddon, a thousand years before this, Jesus comes back and He picks up the Antichrist and the false prophet by the scruff of the neck and casts him alive in the lake of fire. There are two that went alive straight to the presence of the Lord to heaven, Enoch and Elijah. There are two that went straight into the lake of fire without dying, the Antichrist and the, the, the false prophet. And guess what? A thousand years later, they're still there. They're still burning. They're still tormented. And guess who joins them? The devil. Cast into the lake of fire where he is tormented day and night forever and ever. Not annihilated, eternal torment. And guess what? The rest of the chapter is going to show us. And not just the Antichrist, not just the false prophet, not just the devil, not just his angels, but the wicked. They too will be cast into the same lake of fire. You see, if you die, if you're dead, if your loved ones are dead and in hell, they're just in a holding cell. Their spirit is in a holding cell. They haven't even been judged yet. What awaits them is a second resurrection. Resurrected from hell, slapped with a new body to stand before a throne and be judged for their works, and then cast alive into a lake of fire with the devil, the false prophet, and the antichrist. That's the second death. That's what we're going to learn about at the end of the chapter when we come with you next time. But that's something for us to pause and think about now. Hell is just the beginning for the wicked when you die without Christ. 
What awaits is the lake of fire. The same place that has been appointed for the devil awaits the wicked. And you can't escape just because mommy and daddy are righteous in Christ. You must repent and believe the gospel. Jesus Christ is the only one that can save you to God's kingdom. But don't forget, He's also the only one that can save you from the lake of fire. What must we do to be saved? It's very simple. The very first message that Jesus preached when He went out and started His ministry, repent, what does that mean? Acknowledge. God, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. It's that simple. You don't need somebody to say it for you. You can say that to God. I acknowledge that you're right, God. I'm wrong. I'm a sinner. Repent and believe the gospel. What's the gospel? God sent His only begotten Son, just like was prophesied. He was crucified in our place. He was buried. Then He rose from the dead on the third day. And God accepted His sacrifice. And so if we believe upon that and our trust in that, we can escape the lake of fire. Amen. I don't have a problem as a preacher scaring the hell out of people with the gospel. Because I don't want them to go to hell. And Jude says, some you have to save with fear. Yaking them out of the fire. On others have compassion making a difference. There's a place for hell, hellfire and brimstone preaching. God's always used it. He's always used it to bring revival. And I don't have a problem trying to scare the hell out of you. Because I don't want you to go to kids, you kids in here that aren't saved. I hope I scare the hell out of you with messages like this. Because I don't want you to go to heaven. And I can't keep you from going there. You've got to repent and trust the Lord. And you can escape this judgment. But we're going to talk about the great white throne next time. And the most powerful thing about the one sitting on that throne is you don't see his face. Even heaven and earth flee from his face. That's the God. Of creation. If he doesn't match the God you built in your mind to serve your own lust and pleasures, then that's a bad place to be. Because God's not who we make him to be. Those idols have no power. He's who he is. And these passages are serious and they should make us sober. But praise God in Jesus Christ, we don't have to stand at that great white throne. Boy, it does awake the wicked. And that ought to compel us to preach the gospel now before it's too late. So we've gone through chapter 20, verse 10. I do want to go back and talk a little bit about this story from the life of King Jehoshaphat. Kind of highlights what is not talked about in much detail. But one final rebellion, one final object lesson, and out of that, one final judgment. One day it will be final. But guess what? We look for new heavens and a new earth. Where in wealth and righteousness. And I praise God for that. I praise God for that. So again, I've enjoyed being with you. I'm sorry I ran a little late today. We've been trying to stop before one. But uh, I wanted to at least move to a few verses. I hope you're blessed. Eric and I will be out on the road. And uh, I'll be preaching at a church in South Dakota next week. So hopefully I can encouragement to those folks. And I think you're going to resume your study of 2 Timothy, right? Yes. 2 Timothy. That's a great, great book. Chapter 4 in particular. So uh, let's close in prayer. And Lord, we just thank You for Your Word. We just thank You for the sobering truth contained therein. The blessings and the curses. 
the um, promises and the judgments, Lord, they reveal to us your character in total. And Lord, may we humble ourselves. May we trust you. I pray for the children here that don't know you. I pray they would call upon you. They would repent and be saved and escape the coming judgment. Lord, we believe as parents who teach the truth in our homes that like you uh, did with the Philippian jailer, that you will save our households. Not because... Uh, 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 we have the power to do it. You're a faithful God. So we pray that for every household. We can save every person in every household in this church. That we may all rejoice and serve the Messiah and His kingdom together. But bless the food. And we pray for those who are not amongst us. And again, reaffirm the prayer request that we mentioned in the beginning. And Lord, I look forward to the day to be back with these believers. Help us to fellowship with one another and to think upon Your name in these dark days and to serve You. And to love people enough. Red, yellow, black, or white, gay, straight, liberal, conservative, Democrat, Republican, to love them all enough to tell them the truth. Mm -hmm. um, and not what they want to hear, because that's not what that's hatred. Selfishness. Lord, thank you. We acknowledge you today in this service and in the moments that are going to follow one with another. In Jesus' name. Amen.